On Sunday evenings, we've been studying the types and symbols of the Old Testament. We began several weeks ago by looking at Adam, the type of Jesus, the federal head of a race, one who acts as a representative for others. Then we studied the ark, the type of the one place to hide when the wrath of God is poured out. And the ark, of course, is Christ. Then we saw our third type of Jesus in the saga of Abraham and his son Isaac. And then we looked at a fourth type, Joseph, the rejected kinsman and future savior. Last week we gazed upon the Passover lamb. And tonight we're going to carefully study for a few moments the Old Testament prophet Jonah. In the saga we read of him being swallowed by the great fish, then coming out three days later which always stuns and amazes and provokes men. And we're going to see this is a clear type of Jesus in his resurrection. The exit of Jonah from the belly of the fish after three days is the type, the picture, the symbol of Christ in his resurrection. As I've reminded you each week, types presuppose something. They presuppose a plan in history that is unfolding. That God is engineering history, and he embeds it, especially in the Old Testament, with images that point forward. Think about some of the, the features and characteristics of a legitimate type. We could point out several, but I'll just point out three. First of all, a type has to be a true picture of the person it represents. So, for example, we are told in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Christ is our Passover. So we're on pretty safe grounds of saying the Passover is a type. It's a true picture of the Lord Jesus in his sacrificial work. The second, there must be a divine appointing and designation. So, for example, Moses was told in Exodus 25 to make the tabernacle and its utensils after the pattern. God had, had shown him a heavenly pattern, and so the type had a divine appointment. And third, a type always prefigures something future. And so a type is a form of prophecy. We can see in the action of Jonah here that it's a a prophetic symbol of the resurrection of Christ. Now, in our study of the Old Testament, we are never surprised to find types there. Indeed, according to Jesus on the road to Emmaus the day after the day of his resurrection, he tells the two travelers who are walking with him that Christ is to be seen on every page of the Old Testament. Sometimes more clearly, sometimes in type and shadow. And so we are certainly not surprised tonight to find this type in the Old Testament. Let's ask for the Lord's help now at this time. Well, Sovereign Lord, we count it a great privilege to hold in our hands the complete, perfect, powerful, living word. And we ask now as we open it, hear it, study it, that you would guide us into right understandings. You would write it upon our hearts. Let us hear its warnings and be comforted by its promises. Keep us from drowsiness and the distractions of the evil one. Give us attentiveness and humility under your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me clearly or carefully at Matthew chapter 12, which is our first reading, our New Testament reading. Matthew 12, verses 22 through 42. And I want you to see the context for our Lord's words. They come in a sharp disagreement. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, we see one of the great works of Jesus. In Matthew 12, 22, Jesus has just healed a man who can't see, can't talk, 
and is demon-possessed. This is a mighty work. There should be a party being thrown, a celebration. Men should be bowing down in this moment. For we are told, and notice how scripture doesn't play this up, doesn't add drama. It just reports it very flatly. Read with me verse 22. One was brought to him, was demon-possessed, blind, and mute, and he healed him. So that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And Jesus did this in front of the very eyes of his opponents. And so, talk about ultimate verification. It was done right there. They could see it. And so Jesus shows them this is not a fraudulent game, but a mighty demonstration of the power of God. The Lord Jesus has done the following. Open blind eyes, loosed a mute tongue, and cast out evil spirits. Three mighty miracles, any one of which alone would have been profound, but he does all three at once. And so next comes the explanation for the works. The crowds can't ignore it. They've all seen it. So they've got to assign some meaning to this incident. So here's their best theory. I want you to look at this and scratch your head. Here's their theory. Look at verse 24. They attribute the great works of Jesus, the merciful works of Jesus. Hold your breath here. To the power of Satan. Jesus is very quick to point out the logical fallacies of their theory for the next several verses after verse 24. But it's little wonder that he calls them in verse 39 an evil generation. When Jesus calls them that in verse 39, evil means deceptive, wicked. In spite of all their external observances of religion, they were corrupt men. Now, what is it they wanted Jesus to do? Look carefully at verse 38. And by the way, remember this. This has to be hanging in the background. When they ask this, Jesus has just done a tripart sign. He's done an amazing sign. But what is it they want Jesus to do? They say to him in verse 38, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And of course, you want to say, look at him. He can see, he can talk, the demons are gone. But what they were trying to do by their request for a sign in verse 38 is they were trying to find something that Jesus could not deliver on. What they are saying is, Jesus, none of the things that you have done yet, all the healings, all the nature miracles, none of the things that you've done yet impress us or convince us as to your claims. Jesus, of course, had done so many healings that one New Testament scholar said, Disease was banished from Israel at the end of his three-year public ministry. And whether it was calming the storm or walking on water or changing water into wine or, or feeding thousands or the, the exorcisms by the hundreds, still wasn't enough. So what is it they wanted him to do? Look at verse 38 and let's ask, what did they want him to do? Did they want him to, to blaze his name across the sky in enormous letters of gold? They still wouldn't have believed and by the way, this was a typical Jewish approach to authentication. Remember Gideon in Judges chapter 6? And he kept demanding more and more signs. Paul engages in an inspired racial assessment when he says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-two, Jews ask for signs. It was a national pathology. It had been going on since long before, uh, before Gideon. It had been happening even before Moses' day. But in the case of these people, 
when in verse 38 they ask for a sign. It wouldn't have mattered what Jesus had performed. They had already decided to kill him. Look back at verse 14 in our context. We read there. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. They really didn't want a sign. And Jesus will say in a parallel text in John 8, they are of their father, the devil. They were satanically motivated. In fact, they are imitating and duplicating what Satan tried to do when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. You'll remember that he challenged Jesus to prove, show him a sign, to prove and demonstrate his deity by diving off the temple. Satan knew who Jesus was. But he hated him, and he wanted to control him, and he didn't want to submit to him. And so he kept asking for more signs, more verification. Now I want you to notice, because all of this is a run-up to our text. In your text, look at Matthew 12, verse 39 through 42. And Jesus makes the hard-wired comparison between Jonah and himself. Jesus points to a type. So interpretively, look, at, look with me at verse 40 so you can notice the key words of comparison. Jesus tells us there's a, there's a hardwired relationship here between Jonah and himself. Was Jonah a historical person? Of course. But as we've seen over and over again, historical persons can be types. So notice what we are told in verse 40. Jesus begins to answer. And notice the key words here. As Jonah was in the was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And so notice those words of comparison, as and so. Now in passing, notice that Jesus clearly accepts and affirms the account of Jonah as history. He doesn't view it as mythology. He states it's a historical fact. He doesn't see it as a a legend. He sees it as historical truth. Now I want you to see four points of correspondence between Jonah the type and Jesus the anti-type. Listen carefully. Because Jesus calls this the specific sign in verse 39. So notice the four points of correspondence. First of all, both Jonah and Jesus would be inside for three days and then come out. Jonah would be in the belly of the great fish, Jesus in the heart of the earth, entombed. According to Jesus, Jonah's sojourn in the giant fish prefigured and foreshadowed his death and three days in the grave. That's the essence of a type or a symbol. A second point of correspondence. Both were humiliated. Jonah was degraded by this one incidence of harsh treatment being thrown overboard. But Jesus was degraded more by 33 and a half years of non-recognition, abuse, and scorn culminating in the cross. And then there's a fascinating, a third point of correspondence. After their emergence, in both cases, thousands are immediately converted. In Jonah's case, we see a massive, sovereign grace work of conversions in Nineveh, one of the great revivals in history. And in Jesus' case, we see the exact same thing. We see Pentecost, where thousands of men are converted within days after his resurrection. A fourth point of correspondence. 
Jonah was cast overboard to a watery grave. It was thought to make peace with God. Jesus was crucified, placed in the grave to secure our peace with God. There's a hermeneutical lesson for us here, the science and art of interpreting scripture. Oftentimes the, the, the true import of a biblical person or event is given much later in scripture. And what we find is, now hundreds of years have passed since the story of Jonah, but what we find is Jesus interprets for us. He looks back those several hundred years to Jonah, and he gives us the chief point of the reason why the book of Jonah is in the canon of Scripture, and why this specific incident is here. The chief point of the type of Jonah, as supplied by the apostolic author, is to be a pointer to Christ's resurrection. God gives repentance to a whole nation, the Ninevites, so that a type, a symbol, will be recorded in the canon of Scripture. God gives repentance to them in order to anticipate the mission of one who is greater than Jonah. But this evening is unusual and interesting, because not only do we have these points of correspondence, I would be a poor interpreter if I didn't point out all of the contrasts that are in the text between Jonah and Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to just see the similarity between his life and that of Jonah. There are incredible contrasts as well. Jesus makes that contrast for us in the text. Look at verse 41, his last words there. He says, indeed, a greater than. That's a word of contrast. A greater than Jonah is here. Let me point out several of the contrasts between Jonah and Jesus. First of all, Jesus is a greater prophet. Jonah, of course, and we're not speaking in any sort of demeaning way, but he's not a major prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah. He's a minor prophet. He certainly doesn't compare to God the Son. But Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. He's the great and final prophet. The second contrast, there's a greater holiness Jonah is a a sinful, rebellious, defiant backslider running as hard and fast away from God and his will as he can. But Jesus is the completely obedient, sinless one. He's the one who says in John 8, which of you convicts me of sin? A third contrast. Jesus' message is so much greater. Jonah's message, of course, was one of doom. And he liked preaching it. When he came to Nineveh, we know what his sermon was. Here it comes over and over again from Jonah 3. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he wanted to sit up on the hill outside and watch it. He was glad to preach that message. But Jesus comes proclaiming the message of free grace and pardon. Jesus comes saying, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He has a greater message. A fourth point of contrast is greater familiarity. Jonah was a foreigner. He came to the Ninevites who spoke a different language and had a different culture. And so he, by nature, was somewhat removed from them. But Jesus was one of them. He came to his own and his own still received him not, we're told in John 1. A fifth point of contrast, there's a greater authentication. Jonah performed no miracles. He just preached a brief sermon of judgment. 
But Jesus' message, when he came, was authenticated by signs and wonders. It seems as though there were dozens and dozens per day for three and a half years. A sixth point of contrast. Jesus preached to a greater advantaged audience, so their responsibility would be greater. When Jonah came, his message was brought to people with no spiritual preparation, idol-worshiping Gentile dogs. But when Jesus came, he preached to people who, Paul says in Romans 3, had every spiritual advantage. A final point of contrast, when Jesus came, his was a much greater compassion. Jonah, of course, was hard-hearted. Reluctant to preach to these spiritually needy people. And then when God gave them repentance, Jonah became angry. Jonah never wept over Nineveh. But Jesus, he of tender heart, lamented and wept over wayward Israel. So then Jesus gives the the rest of the story about what will happen because of this type. Look in our text in Matthew chapter 12. In verse 41 and 42, Jesus makes an astoundingly direct and provocative statement about the judgment. He says in verse 41 and 42 that Gentiles and women would judge them. The covenant seed of Abraham would judge them on the last day. And he cites two examples to prove his assertion. Look at verse 41. Jesus states that Gentiles will judge them, the men of Nineveh. When Jonah came and preached to the city of Nineveh, the Ninevites, without discussion or argument, immediately repented and believed. None of them asked for signs. They just heeded the message and repented and believed. And Jesus is saying to these recalcitrant Israelites, he's saying, these men, these men who when a a grumpy prophet came to them, And half-heartedly preached the message of salvation if they would repent and believe. These men who quickly repented and believed, they will rise up on the last day and pass judgment on you. Because the Jews of Jesus' day were merely amused or outraged at Jesus' words. They're certainly all resistant, even to the point of killing the Lord of glory. And so Jesus says, judge number one on the last day will be a bunch of Gentile men from Nineveh for you. Judge number two, look at verse 42 of our text. He says, a Gentile woman will also judge them. He, of course, is speaking about the queen of Sheba. Sheba was in southern Arabia. This is the modern-day Yemen. This woman came from the ends of the earth to see Solomon. She brought a great caravan of spices and gold and precious gems. Her intent was to gain wisdom. She praised God for the wisdom given to Solomon that she could partake of. This woman, now Jesus says, a second Gentile, but now a woman. This woman will rise up and she too will join the men of Nineveh in passing judgment on the men of Jesus' day. Because she was willing to travel great distances to see Solomon. Well, these Jews standing right there would not walk across town to hear or see Jesus at all. Because she'll pass judgment on them because the Jews had one greater than Solomon to teach them. Certainly Solomon was the wisest man of his day, but in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This woman, the queen of Sheba, came from a far off land to listen to wisdom from Solomon. A man who became a tyrant, a womanizer, 
and who sowed the seeds of national disaster. And look at what Jesus says about himself in verse 42. He says, now stands in front of you one greater than Solomon. That's his assessment of himself. Greater than Solomon, and they want to argue and condemn him. Oh man, I know that Jesus hears when he says these words in verse 41 and 42. We're absolutely enraged. Gentiles and women judging us. Jesus is saying there are two groups of Gentiles that have been wiser and more responsive than you. And they will judge you. How do we apply this word? Let me make several applications to us tonight. How many times have you engaged in an evangelistic discussion with someone and then your hearer drops the big bomb. I won't believe unless I see a sign. Well, this text is God's word to sign seekers. Here it comes. The sign has been given. The evidence that the gospel is true, that Jesus is God and salvation is a reality, is the resurrection of Jesus. Look carefully at Matthew 12, verse 39. When Jesus tells them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because that sign was was a type. It was the type pointing to the anti-type, the resurrection of Jesus. And so what Jesus says in our evangelistic conversations, in in our pleading with lost men, here's the ultimate sign. The resurrection of Jesus. If you're waiting for a better sign, like the unearthing of Noah's Ark or the discovery of the Ark of the Covenant, a la Spielberg, quit. Do you think that would impact people when God in the flesh stood in front of them performing miracles? The problem is not that God has has not supplied enough evidence already. According to Romans 1, God has given incontrovertible evidence of his existence and power to every person. The problem is their heart. They don't want to believe. Have you ever seen the sad picture of a a mother outside of a courtroom when when her son's been clearly convicted by evidence of a crime and you've seen that mother crying out in disbelief, no, no, it's not true. And you and the judge and the jury and the bailiff and everyone else have all seen the evidence, but she doesn't want to believe it. Jesus made it clear that such folks would not believe even if one came back from the dead, he says in Luke 16. No, God has already given the sign. Look carefully at verse 39. God says, this is it. This is the type. This is the symbol. This is the sign. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews ask for signs, but we preach Christ. What is the right answer to the person who demands a sign? To preach Christ in his resurrection. A second application. I want you to notice that the Lord does not call on us to believe in opposition to the truth. He doesn't call on you to believe in belief. He doesn't call on you to have faith in faith or to take a leap in the dark. The Lord always calls on us to believe in the truth. That's the true character of Christian faith. And so look at verse 39. What is it that God gives sign seekers? What does he tell them to believe? A true historical act. The resurrection of Jesus on the third day would say by way of application as well, men who will not believe what God says in the Bible about Jesus and his resurrection 
will always necessarily vacillate on all other issues of morality and behavior. If men will refuse to believe something as well attested and self-evident that Jesus came out of the grave, he will disbelieve something as evident as a child in the womb is a person that should be guarded, or that God made men to be partners with women and not other men. A man who can disbelieve this, who can disbelieve the resurrection of Jesus, the most well-attested event in history, can disbelieve anything. Another application. Jesus certainly teaches and asserts a final judgment. He teaches here that the kings and queens of the past and every other person will be raised and stand before the throne of God to be judged. The residents of Nineveh and Jerusalem, of Greenville and Los Angeles will stand before Christ on that day. You and I will be there. How do you prepare for that day? The only preparation is repentance and faith in the risen Jesus, the living Christ, the one who's come out of the grave. Another application. God's judgment will be according to the light you've received. Your advantage is immense. You have the entire inscripturated record of our Lord's life and ministry. Perhaps you've sat here week in and week out, year in, year out, and you've kind of smirked at all this business. My friend, your judgment will be greater than anyone else's. Because just like the hardened Pharisees of Jesus' day, you've squandered your covenant privileges. And you've ignored all the benefits. And you've had Christ from this pulpit, Sunday morning, Sunday night, week after week. You've had Christ in all his sovereignty and majesty and power displayed to you. Great will be your judgment if you ignore and say, I need more signs. I would urge you tonight to repent of your indifference and carelessness and stubbornness and doubt. And bow the knee to the Lord as Savior tonight. Finally, Jesus shows us here when he says in Matthew 12, verse 39, No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah, meaning the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the sign. And so let us make much of it. Let us boast in it and believe it. Let us keep that at the forefront of our message. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that he passed on that which was of of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and he rose on the third day. That is our sign. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is indeed a goldmine of truth. Give us zeal and delight in bringing forth its riches and in seeing Christ on every page. Tonight we ask that you would strengthen our faith in the sign that you have given, even the bringing forth of your beloved Son from a grave alive. Strengthen us to trust your word and to trust him. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Trinity Psalter hymnal and turn to hymn 394 as we stand and sing Eternal Spirit, God of Truth, hymn 394.